Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodoichin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. My guest on this episode is Bob Colicello, the New York writer who found fame as editor of Interview magazine and one of Andy Warhol's cohort during the 70s and 80s. As well as writing the definitive book on Warhol, Holy Terror, he chronicled the famous nightlife scene centred around Studio 54 and its potent mix of celebrities, politicians and socialites in his photographs, which were published in his book out in 2007, and more of which are currently on show at the Vito Schnabel Gallery in New York. Bob came to see me during the Matches Fashion Residency at the Freeze Art Fair in New York to talk about those heady days, his thoughts on the media and politics today, and his exciting new project. This place is so cool. I love this plant. All Do the you? plants are amazing. You like this it? Is, yeah, it's so like Mexican or something. <laughs> <laughs> Diego we Rivera. We have a good. Yeah, it is a bit Diego. That's just a trendy. I mean, these rugs. Everyone has these rugs though now, don't they? I don't know what is this rug. This is like a. I think it's a. It's called a kilim. Oh isn't right. Isn't it? Like no, a Moroccan. Oh, no, well, it's, it's not a kiln. It's not a kiln, no. I know. Kilns are more geometric than they're flat. It's, um, it's a shag it's rug kind of, of some sort. It is Moroccan. So, hi, Bob. Hi, Danielle. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on to our podcast show. Oh, well, thanks um, for inviting me on. It took us a while to set up today, and we're at the Freeze New York Art Fair, and we couldn't get in at first. <laughs> right. But they, but they finally let us through the gates. Um, so we're here. And it's exciting to have you, and I don't think you've been to the fair yet, so you haven't had a chance to look around. No, I haven't. Um, but hopefully after this you'll have a chance and you might see a some... scroll. <laughs> yeah, you might see some things you like or some, some people you know. Um, you've had your own show. Yeah, I had a show of my photographs from uh, the 1970s and early 80s that I took when I was editor, editor of Interview. Uh, the show opened last night at Vito Schnabel Projects. Uh, on Clarkson Street in the West Village, and we had a big turnout, and it was a lot of fun. So how many photographs? There's 175 vintage prints, mm -hmm. and then um, eight uh, new prints that were, you know, blown up in the, they'll, in their editions of three, and they're 30 by 40 inches, and... Um, and they document your nights out in the 70s and 80s? Yeah, and they, they, they document um, that era, really, where things seemed so much more open then, and there was so much more mixing going on among uh, all kinds of people, and, you know, uptown and downtown and gay and straight and society and Hollywood. And, um, and working with Andy Warhol, you sort of went everywhere and met everybody, and... I had this little Minox camera in my jacket pocket and people didn't even know I was taking their photos because I was like editor of interview, they didn't think of me as a photographer. So almost all the photos are taken at private events, like it might be a dinner party at Diane Furstenberg's 
Fifth Avenue apartment or the wedding of Maria Niarcos in Normandy at her father, father's horse farm. Um, just um, how, a lot how, of different events. How come you hadn't published until now? You've already published a book of your photographs. Well, yeah, I actually had an exhibition at Mary Boone Gallery in 1990 when my, my memoir of my years with Warhol called um, Holy Terror, Andy Warhol Close-Up, when that came out, Mary gave me a show. And then uh, Stephen Kasher Gallery has given me two shows. Uh, the first was because of the publication of this book called Out, that Steidel did. I had a column in interview which was called Out in the days when Out meant going out, not coming out, but not that the column was uh, particularly uh, straight or gay, or it was a little bit of everything, I guess. It was just New York life, and, and not just New York. I'd do out in L.A., out in Washington. I mean, there were photos of the, from the Carter administration, Carter inauguration, from uh, the Reagan inauguration in Washington. Um, yeah, so, uh, so uh, I did this book called Out, Steidel published it with Karl Lagerfeld in 2000, I don't know, eight or something. And then I did a second show with Kasha, but he just closed his gallery and he went to work for David Zwerner. So when I told Vito that, Vito was like, well, that That's means Vito I can novel. show you, the, yeah. uh, I, I can show your photographs. Because I work with Vito, I'm his uh, senior advisor, which means, as I told you, that I'm old and he doesn't listen to me, but we have a lot of I'm fun sure working together. True. He got me to curate my first show ever in his gallery in St. Moritz, called The Age of Ambiguity, Abstract Figuration, Figurative Abstraction, about the blending of blurring of all the lines in contemporary art. Um, yeah, I just, I have a lot going on, and I'm, <laughs> for someone who's turning 72 next week. Yeah, it's, um, it's impressive, it's impressive. <laughs> um, is that, do you, the reason I was asking about the photos is, do you have any more, did you, you deliberately held some back and thought, with, with the thinking, oh, I No, I'm well, when the, uh, the outbook was just this great art director, Sam Shahid, who does the art, you know, does all of, designs all of Bruce Weber's books and Kelly Klein's books and Calvin Klein ads and Abercrombie and Fitch catalogs. He just said, he remembered that I used to run some of these photos in Interview Magazine and said, where are those photos? I said, they're in a couple of boxes at my office. He said, oh, bring them to me. And so I did. And the next thing I knew, he made a book. And so he really chose the photos that he thought were good photos, not just because, Mick, you know, he didn't like take every Mick Jagger picture or every picture of Andy, just took the good ones. And there were a lot of photos of people who are unknown, but they're young and beautiful or just crazy looking or, you know, whatever. So um, if we do another book, uh, and the, the idea of the show was to show stuff that hadn't been shown before. Uh, I'd say about 10% actually was shown. It, so what kind of people are in these photos? Well, it's everyone from like, um, Henry Kissinger at a cocktail party in Washington, or in, to Lady Bird Johnson in Acapulco at a Holston promotion, to um, a lot of what we used to call the English muffins, all these <laughs> sort of uh, glamorous young English kids who would come and stay at Fred Hughes's Hotel Anglophilia. That was Andy's business manager, and he had a mm -hmm. house up on Lexington Avenue. So it's people like Mark Shand and Catherine Guinness and Ann Lampton. Um, so is that melting pot of it's kind of jet-setty. Arist uh, British aristocracy. Yeah, but also Art Rauschenberg, yeah. 
um, Lichtenstein, a lot of artists, Jamie Wyeth, um, political people. There's a photo of Gary Hart, for example, at Jimmy Carter's inauguration. There's Cher making out with Greg Allman at the Carter inauguration in the White House. Wow. Um, you know, so there's... Why do you think that... Um you, you mentioned the mixing of, of, of all the different types of people that was happening then. Why doesn't that happen now? Um, I think there's a variety of reasons. One is um, women don't want to be hostesses anymore, you know. I mean, Diane Furstenberg used to give the greatest parties on Fifth Avenue. I mean, she, she started working, you know, but I, I think that's one reason. But I think the the more significant also you, people like Andy Malcolm Forbes I mean they were like catalysts they they actually deliberately set about mixing up people and then disco music also was so democratic everyone could dance with everybody um, you didn't have to learn steps uh, it was black music that, that sort of infiltrated the gay clubs and, and then sort of it made straight people go to gay clubs and then it all exploded into something called Studio 54 where you had everybody together dancing together. Um, I think today with political correctness and especially identity politics where we're all like put in boxes again like we were back in the 1950s so like you're a woman or you're gay or you're black or you're and that's like your whole identity and you're sort of and no one else is allowed to like write about your experience if they're not of that group it's 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 like what elected trump i think you know finally the straight white guy said they're going to have their identity group and vote for yeah. one of their own kind I, I just think it's very it's very divisive it's very uh, factionalizing and uh, let's go back to the yeah. i want to go back to your beginnings a bit. Um, so this podcast has a, a certain format where the interviewee speaks about five things that, that that inspires them or has meant something to them. And I know you've come with a few things that you wanted to talk about. What was the first thing you wanted to mention? Well, the, I mean, I was trying to think of, you know, possessions. Yeah. I, that that was the suggestion that sort of mean a lot to me. And uh, first thing I came up with was my a photograph from my holy, my first communion in in uh, Brooklyn, and um, you know I grew up Catholic, and I, in some ways, Long Island. Well, I was born in Brooklyn until I was eight. Um, we lived in Brooklyn in Bensonhurst, which was a very mixed Jewish and Italian neighborhood. Italians and Jews always got along in America, and um, we actually moved to Long Island on my eighth birthday. So my communion was the day before the birthday and I was a nervous wreck because I knew we were moving the next day and the next day was my birthday and Mother's Day so there was like a lot going on and the That's nuns had drilled into us that w as Catholics we believe in transubstantiation which means the, the, the host and the wine is the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. That's why you can't like chew it, you can't keep it in your mouth too long, you just have to sort of swallow it magically. And we had to rehearse with cardboard. And so I was so nervous at the whole thing that when the priest put the host on my tongue, I spit it out. Oh. And this altar boy, you know, holding this gold tray that I don't think anyone else ever had, you know, spit the thing out. He like looked at the priest like, what do I do now? And this nun suddenly pulled me by the ear, 
dragged me out to the vestibule and started slapping me, whereupon my mother appeared and said, get your hands off my son. So it was like a very traumatic experience, my first communion. The next day we had to stop at the church with the moving van and I had to run in with my mother and have my first communion all over again in private. I loved that. And so, uh, but there's something about growing up Catholic, I think that one definitely helped me uh, connect to Andy Warhol, who was Catholic, and Paul Morrissey, and Fred Hughes. Almost everyone at the factory was Catholic, even the superstars like Bridget Berlin and Viva and Ultraviolet. Um, Edie was one of the few wasps. Jane Holzer was one of the few Jewish superstars. <laughs> and because, you know, Catholicism, when you, when you ask a question about anything, they tell you it's a mystery or it's a miracle, and just have to accept it. And that was very much Andy's approach to things. He never explained his art. It was just like he did it, you know? Yeah. And um, all the ritual of the church, which has been lost with the, with the loss of the Latin Mass. You know, when you're a young kid, and uh, we moved to a town called Plainview on Long Island when I was eight, and it was just one of these brand new suburbs that had been potato fields in 1954. And in 1955, there were 10,000 split-level houses. And so the church was like the only, you know, fake Gothic building with stained glass windows and the masses with these priests in purple robes. And it was like the only theater, you know, that you had in your life. And I think when they modernized it, they kind of lost that. But um, I'm very much a traditionalist, so, and a Luddite and all these things are not, not, that are not cool to be. I think that is cool. But anyway, um, okay, so, and, so you grew up, um, and, and Long Island Catholic, um, Republican. You, <laughs> you were a Republican then. Were My parents, parents and grandparents. And you're still a Republican. Then? Yeah. Um, and I think yeah. What did you um, tell me about how what, what took you from from that phase in your life to then? Um, I think you studied. Were you studying film at university? Well, first I went to Georgetown Foreign Service School mm. for undergraduate, and then. I graduated in 69. Um, Nixon had just replaced Johnson as president. The Vietnam War was raging. I just didn't see myself becoming a diplomat. I was in my brief radical left-wing phase. Okay. And I, I always, I took art courses on the side while I was at Georgetown at Corcoran School of Art. And, and film was so exciting at that moment. It was the era of Fellini, Antonioni, Bertolucci, Godard, Truffaut. Louis Mal and like a lot of kids my age at that moment I wanted to be a filmmaker so my parents very nicely agreed to pay the tuition at Columbia graduate school uh, film school and um, at the film school uh, the professor of film criticism and history was named Andrew Saris and he was one of the big critics uh, he wrote for the Village Voice, which was like the hot weekly political and cultural paper in New York. And he would publish our student reviews, our homework assignments, some of them, you know, he, the ones he liked the best, in the Village Voice. And Andy Warhol, unbeknownst to me, was reading these reviews. And one day I got a phone call from a guy who said he was the editor of this new magazine interview that Andy Warhol had started, and they wanted to meet me and see if I would uh, write for the magazine. So I was like beside myself with excitement, I mean, uh, and awe, 
because for me there was like Mick Jagger, William Burroughs, you know, Andy Warhol was right up there in my pantheon of like um, creative rebels and and so, you know, I met, I went to the factory, I met Andy, I met everybody, I started writing some reviews and I'd hand them in once a month and Andy would always like chat me, you know. He was, I, I realized now he was kind of interviewing me, he would always like ask me kind of, all kinds of questions and and then one, six months later, I went to hand in an article in the interview office, which was on a different floor than the main factory, had been padlocked, turned out the editor who first called me was fired, and Andy said, oh, Paul, Paul Morrissey, talk to Paul, and Paul said, oh, Andy and I think you should be the new editor, and I was like, what? I How mean, old were you at this point? 23. 23. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know, and it was, you know, so suddenly, I always say I, I never had to social climb because I sort of landed on Mount Olympus in Andy's helicopter because he would, <laughs> if you worked a little late, he always liked to have an entourage. So we would say, oh, want to go to a party with me? And he'd say, oh, sure. And it would be like Mick Jagger's 30th birthday party and we'd have to pick up Truman Capote and Lee Radziwill on the way, you know, and I'm this kid from Long Island. I mean, Georgetown, I, I became, I guess, more worldly. My father actually worked uh, on Wall Street in the coffee trade. He was the first Italian-American executive in the coffee trade. And um, so we had lots of Latin Americans in our life from all the coffee-producing countries. But still, I mean, it was nothing like, you know, it was not the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds, uh, nor was it Candy Darling and Hollywood Lawn, you know, <laughs> these great drag queens that uh, really were terrifically talented actresses and um, just so much fun to be around. What was it about you that Andy, why, why do you think he thought you'd be the right kind of person to take with him to all these events? Was it because you were a talker? Like I know Yeah, he, he said he talked. liked beauties and talkers, and yeah. I was a talker. <laughs> and, he, and also I had, you know, the next day he'd call me up and say, oh, uh, that was a fun party, or what did you do? And like I would remember, you know, I would like go into detail about what I remembered, and he would be like, oh gee, if people won't let me tape record, you could be my human tape recorder. Cause I, some people remember everything everybody wore. Some people remember all the art on the wall and they become art dealers. I remember what people say. And uh, which, you know, I don't know, it's just the way I grew up. Uh, we sat around the kitchen table with my mother telling stories of our school day and imitating our classmates and teachers. And I think that's an Italian thing too. But, um, <clears throat> no, you know, and I had, uh, um, just before they made me editor, I'd written for the magazine, I reviewed Andy Warhol's Trash, which had just opened in theaters in New York and a few other places. And I said it was a, a great Roman Catholic masterpiece along the lines of Genese, Our Lady of the Flowers. And I described I, uh, a phrase that Paul Morrissey loved. Is loved. I referred to Joe D'Alessandro's Greco-Roman ass. And so, like, you know, they and Paul was like, oh, you get us, you get us. Like, we are all Catholic. And I love that Greco-Roman ass, you know. And it was like, you know, I was trying to find, like, an elegant way to describe this movie, which was very trashy and X-rated and about, you know, a male hustler who couldn't get it up because he was a heroin addict. That was the guy with the Greco-Roman ass. And Holly Woodlawn was his girlfriend, sort of on welfare. And Andy's films and the films he made with Paul in particular were, they were they were really hilarious. You know, they were really funny. And 
Do they still show those films anywhere still? Or are they just more considered works of art? Uh, well, yeah, like MoMA and The Whitney both have like the complete collections and I guess they do screen them every so often. I think you, you said you were one of the only people that sat through the Empire State. Well, one. yeah, because then soon after I started working at Interview, I had an offer to uh, write a book about Andy's films. And Andy's films, which started with like Empire, they just started with a camera on a tripod. He would do these screen tests where he, he would put a three and a half minute reel of 16 millimeter film in the camera. And like he, you would be sitting there and he would say, he'd go off and you just would stare at the camera for three and a half minutes and you know, and different people, some would like not blink, others would like go through a lot of different facial expressions. And then he did sleep, a man sleeping for eight hours, Empire, the Empire State Building for 12 hours. So I actually went to anthology film archives where they had these films and watched all of them as they progressed into a little more, you know, more, more narrative and uh, Chelsea Girls was the great masterpiece uh, made at the Chelsea Hotel. It was actually seven hours of film but shown on split screen and so it was three and a half hours long and it went from character to character in you know different rooms of the hotel. So it was Eric Emerson on an acid trip, uh, there was Bridget Berlin shooting up girls with speed right through their jeans, there was Pope Undine torture playing, uh, doing a confession scene with with Ingrid, what was her name, uh, just torturing her, being like, you know, extreme parody of a mean priest. Um, Chelsea Girls really, that was the first Warhol film I saw when I was still at Georgetown. But yeah, I sat through all those films. I never got the book finished because I became so busy, not only with interview, but tra traveling with Andy because Andy and Fred Hughes, his um, business manager and art manager, again realized I could talk up the ladies, I could be good with the clients, because it was all about getting the ladies to have their portraits done, or getting their husbands to commission the portraits. So with the husbands, the husbands were like wary of Andy and this entourage of young guys, basically. And when I said I was Republican or I liked Nixon, there was like, oh, one person we could relate. <laughs> and Andy would say to me privately, how could you be a Republican? Didn't have to. He was a Democrat. Yeah, didn't have yeah. to like rescue your family during the Depression. I was like, no, they didn't. <laughs> but when we were out with these square people, and we say, oh, Bob's a Republican, <laughs> or like, Bob likes Nixon. So it, you know, we had like an act almost yeah, uh, that yeah. developed. When I told some people that I was interviewing you, a few of them said they wanted to hear more about Fred Hughes. Um, he's this quite mysterious figure and there isn't much available about to read about him. Well, there's like a whole chapter in my Holy Terror book, giving myself a plug. There's actually a fantastic photo of Fred nude from the rear at the Hotel Excelsior in Naples. We used to share these big suites at all these grand hotels, like the Creon in Paris, where we'd have a, you know, a, a living room, sitting room, and then Andy's room, and my room, and Fred's, they all would connect. And um, so I just snapped this picture of Fred shaving, and you know, Fred was so elegant that even naked he looked elegant. His posture, his, he had incredible style. He came from Houston, Texas. He went to Rice University where the art department was funded by Jean and Dominique Dumenil, who were these great art collectors who came from France, you know, during the war. And the, the Menil collection is their collection. 
And they sort of took Fred under their wing. When he graduated Rice, he went to Paris and worked at the Yolas Gallery, which was the gallery of all the surrealists like Max Ernst and um, Magritte. And uh, then he met uh, Andy with the Duminiles at a benefit for John Cage, the avant-garde musician, up at Philip Johnson's Glass House in New Canaan, Connecticut. And Andy and Fred just hit it off. This is how Andy was. And the next thing you knew, Fred was at age 27, Andy's manager. Andy broke his exclusive contract with Leo Castelli. Fred got him galleries all over Europe. And uh, But Fred was the kind of, I learned so much from Fred. I mean, he was just a... a he kind of stuck up for you a lot. Yeah, yeah, and he was also realized, well, Bob could like fill in for me if I, you know, I don't have to go to every dinner. Like Bob could go to some. and. Um, we worked really well together, including on an interview magazine. He was, he was always pushing for the magazine to be kind of more snobbish and more, more um, like social and not so Hollywood. Because it started out as interview a film journal, and so as it went along, it got more and more. I like to get started getting politics in it too. I mean, interviews with political figures like Paul Volcker, the chairman of the Federal Reserve. So by the late 70s, we really hit our stride, where we again had this mix where you would go from Paul Volcker to Jodie Foster to uh, Rauschenberg. I mean, just like, you know, very eclectic. Mm. Hey, what was the other thing you wanted to, you got oh, well, thing to my, talk about? Well, yes. what really, things that really mean a lot to me. Let's see. Well, one thing was <laughs> the first edition of Truman Capote's Music for Chameleons, okay. which was a book of 14 short pieces, 10 of which had been published an interview first, because when Truman was driven out of society after publishing that one chapter of Answered Prayers, he sort of rediscovered his old friend Andy Warhol, and he started writing for the magazine, which was such a coup for us. And, and he loved uh, you. Uh, yeah, we, again, I, 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 I don't know, I, I guess, um, you know, I just, I worshipped Truman Capote, so people always like to be worshipped. No, we were sort of on the same wavelength, and um, uh, he was so funny, he would say things to me like, I'm giving up cocaine, I'm giving up drinking, I'm only going to do a little pot, you know, we should go swimming every morning at the United <laughs> Nations pool, I'll meet you there tomorrow morning at 9. So I'd get there at 9.15, and he'd be like, where, are, where were you? You're late, I already swam 50 laps. And I was like, really? You know, he said, well, okay, I'll swim another lap with you. And he'd be like doggy paddling, you know, and saying, that Liz Smith, what a bitch. Did you read what she wrote about me yesterday? And like, it's echoing in this indoor pool. Everybody's listening. This was his idea of exercise. Um, but, you know, he signed this book to me and said, to Bob, you little rascal. <laughs> True, you know, love Truman. And so that I value a lot. Um, Another thing on my list of uh, uh, possessions uh, is this watch I'm wearing. It's Bauman Mercier, uh, Bauman Mercier stainless steel tank watch with a brown crocodile band that my close friend, really close friend, Claudia Cohen, gave me for my 60th birthday. And she only lived in a few months after that. She had terrible cancer that she'd been fighting for seven years and keeping a secret from everyone, including me, until it, you couldn't keep it a secret anymore. And she actually gave me my 60th birthday party along with Samantha Boardman and A.B. Rosen uh, and Ian Schrager at the Gramercy Park Hotel on the roof. It was like a seated dinner for 100 
70 people or something. And um, so I think, if, you know, I have, to, I, I had, I have had two friends uh, who were like a brother and sister, Claudia and Thomas Amon, the Swiss art dealer, who was a couple of years younger than me, and he was like the younger brother I always wanted. I had two younger sisters, and um, people thought we were boyfriends. We weren't. We just were like really, really close. And he died at age 44 in 1993 of AIDS. And, you know, he and Claudia were like the kind of friends who like they believed in you more than you believed in yourself. And they both thought I was really funny. So I would call Thomas every day almost in Zurich every morning and tell him like where I went the night before in New York. And he would just laugh at whatever I said. So, you know. So uh, you'd ring him and Andy. You have to uh, well, Andy would ring me, actually, right. yeah, to make sure I was up and working and, and get some more gossip. But Thomas, you know, it was just pleasure to call him. And he, rec he, he would sort of advise me on what art to buy, because he was dealing in Impressionism and Modernism. He was very young. He was in, like, his 20s when he went out on his own. And, um, but he collected contemporary, so he... Uh, he collected like a lot of Eric Fischel, Ross Blechner, Clemente, and also there were the, there were the three C's, Clemente, Kuki, and, um, and um, Kia, who were all the rage, these three Italian artists. And Thomas said, you should buy this beautiful pastel, it was rather large, by Sandro Kia, and it was of a, a, a man, kind of a chubby man, sort of floating in these pink and green clouds. And he had little devil horns. And, and he's, Thomas said, this reminds me of you when you smoked pot. <laughs> so I bought it for like $2,000 or something. It was done in 1980. And uh, Kia signed it to me. And I still have it. And I think of Thomas whenever, I, you know, it, I, it's, it's like his presence. Plus, it's a, just a beautiful work of art. And Kia had a run-in with um, his biggest collector was um, Saatchi, and Saatchi got mad at him for not letting him buy like an entire show, so he then dumped all his work in auction at once. And, uh, <laughs> but um, the other thing I had on my list was um, I became quite close to Nancy Reagan. Again, I don't, you know, I don't know why uh, Nancy Reagan decided like she, she was loved me from the first moment she met me. So how did you meet her initially? Well, there was um, she. She and the president shortly after uh, the inauguration, like a month later in February of '81, came to New York to see this Broadway show called Sugar Babies with Ann Miller and Mickey Rooney, two stars of their vintage, you know. <laughs> and afterwards, um, they came to Le Cirque with Jerry Zipkin, who was Nancy's best friend in New York this Park Avenue bachelor who also was a friend of Andy's going back to the 50s and who also took a liking to me when I first met him and um, Betsy and Alfred Bloomingdale were sort of hosting this dinner and Jerry's date was Claudette Colbert another great old movie star so they all came in and they had a table you know up front Serio the owner of Le Cirque sort of conspired with Jerry Zipkin to fill the restaurant with friends of the Reagan. So when they walked in, everybody stood up and clapped, and it was like, and people were in the street clapping. It was a, you know, a big deal. Um, Janice Dickinson was at Peppo Vanini's table. He owns Ian, and, and she stood up and said, Mr. President, you make me proud to be an American. And it was <laughs> like, the whole thing was so surreal. So 
Andy and I had been invited to join Reynaldo and Carolina Herrera, who had a table with Bianca Jagger and uh, Marina Ciccone, an Italian film producer, and her uh, girlfriend, Florinda Balkan, Brazilian movie star, and Franco Rossellini, another Italian movie producer. And when we finished eating, it was before the Reagan table finished eating, because they had come in late after the theater. And everyone on our table like jumped up and ran over to the Reagan table to be introduced. So I was like, Andy, this is too embarrassing. And I went to the coat check, like, I, not, which meant I didn't have to pass that table. And Andy never knew what to do in these situations. So he like followed me. And we're waiting for our coats. And we hear Alfred Bloomingdale, who had this really deep voice, say, where the hell is Bob Colicello? He's the only Republican in this group. I was the only like American in the group other than Andy. And so Andy said, oh, oh, I think they want you at that table, Bob. So we walk over, and Alfred says, Mr. President, this is Andy Warhol, America's greatest living artist. And this is Bob Colicello, who edits Andy's magazine. And the president, it was just before he had been shot. He, he was 70 years old. He looked so fit. And he had this great posture. And I mean, you know, and the hair. And, I mean, and he was like, oh, nice to meet you. And I, he had no idea who Andy was, I think. Um, then we went to the other end of the table to be introduced to Nancy. And she says hello to Andy. And with me, she takes both my hands in hers and gives me that stare that she was famous for. It says, it's so nice to meet you finally. I've heard so much about you. So I said, oh, well, Mrs. Reagan, I've heard a lot about you, too. And she started laughing. But she had this, like, really deep, sexy, like, knowing laugh that didn't go with this, like, bulletproof hairdo and prim and proper Dolfo suit. And um, the next day she called me from the White House to ask why she was getting such terrible press. I had hired her daughter-in-law as my secretary a couple of months before, so that helped. Uh, but... She was the kind of person, she was the opposite of her husband. Ronald Reagan liked everybody. Ronald Reagan was a very straightforward, honest guy, and he assumed everyone was like that. Nancy was the one who said, Ronnie, this guy's a user, Al Haig is out for himself. You know, uh, she was judgmental, and she either liked you right away or she hated you right away, and it was very hard to get her to change her mind. So. Um, while they were in the White House, I mean, I saw her occasionally. I was invited to a couple of dinners, and when she came to New York, I would be included in the group of friends like Pat and Bill Buckley, who were invited to whatever was going on for her. But when she left the White House, that's when we really grew very close. Uh, Graydon Carter assigned me to write about the Reagans. That was Vanity Fair. In Vanity Fair in, like, 1998. And from she had a no-interview policy, but she, she not only in, let me tape record her many times, but interview all her friends, none of whom had ever talked, because they were all terrified of her. <laughs> and Anna, but I told her, I got to interview some of your enemies too, Nancy. And she was she was great. She never asked to write it, read anything in advance. Um, and she, she would write me these nice thank you notes and, and uh, letters every so often. And so I've saved, uh, you know, I've got about 20 of those in a box. And uh, the funny thing is, Sometimes I'd call her, and or she'd call me, and she'd say, "Oh, I just got a letter from the Queen," and uh, she said, "You know, Bob, she's it's so great. She, she writes all these little letters herself, and she even addresses the envelope herself." And I said, "That's really, you know, that's really class." And uh, so I have Nancy addressed all these 
her at, you know, my address is written in Nancy's hand. Amazing. And which became increasingly indecipherable as she got into her nineties. Uh, but um, yeah, that I'm working on a second book on the Reagans. Right. Uh, the first book was called Ronnie and Nancy: Their Path to the White House. This will be the White House years and after, and it'll be even more than the first focused on Nancy because everything the the president did as president is so known. I mean, there are like 10 books on Iran-Contra. There are 10 books on relations with the Pope or relations with Gorbachev. So, but her side is n really yeah. not told. And sh she was not liked as First Lady. I mean, she did not have high poll numbers. But afterwards, I think all her critics who thought she's just this brittle socialite who her husband's got Alzheimer's, she's going to run off to Buckingham Palace and the Elysee, you know, for dinner parties. Instead, she stayed at his side. She was his primary caregiver for 10 years. And people know, you know, people know what Alzheimer's is because it's touched almost every family in, in this country. And I think it made people see her the way she really is and was. Um, also, I think when she stood up to President Bush, who she liked a lot, the second President Bush, and he liked her a lot. He gave, gave her the Medal of Freedom. He gave the old Air Force One plane went to the Reagan Library, where it's a huge attraction. Um, but she thought he was wrong on stem cell research. And she was the daughter of the leading neurosurgeon in Chicago, the stepdaughter. She grew up ar around doctors in medicine. And she said, I, I just don't understand how you could ban research into something that could help people with Alzheimer's, with Parkinson's, not Ronnie. She said, he's too far gone, you know. And she actually, um, I was with her um, and a bunch of friends on Murph Griffin's boat. It was her birthday, I forget which year, when Ted Kennedy called and said that they wanted to name uh, the bill to legalize stem cell research after her. And she said, no, 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 that's like going too far. And uh, she was very, she, she was very savvy politically. Are you in touch with um, the current political administration in any way? Well, I know Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce, pretty well, and a lot of the billionaires who backed Trump, most of them were not for Trump in the primaries. They, most of them started out being for Jeb Bush. Then there was an effort underway to put Marco Rubio as vice president with uh, Governor Kasich of Ohio as president. But, you know, Bush, uh, Ray, um, Trump just swept everybody out of the way in the Republican primary and the press gave him like 80 or 90 percent of the coverage so the other Republican candidates they hardly had any profile for the public and people tend to vote for the, the brand name the, you know um, but you know then they sort of thought well we got to stop Hillary so everybody went to Trump um, I've known Donald Claudia Cohen and Donald loved each other and she was, you know, the entertainment reporter for the Regis Philbin show and uh, married to, to uh, Ronald Perlman. So she was good with tycoons and self-made men. And, but, uh, you know, Donald loved publicity, so he would go on the Regis Philbin show for her. Uh, the last thing he did, I, I went with Claudia to his wedding, uh, to his second wedding to Marla Maples at the Plaza Hotel, which he owned. And the last thing he did before he walked down the aisle was give Claudia Cohen an exclusive for the Regis Philbin show in the Baroque room, which is adjacent to, you know, the main ballroom. And um, 
he he had bought this house in Palm Beach on the ocean like out of uh, receivership uh, uh, out of foreclosure for like 30 million and he proceeded to like completely you know remodel it uh, and put in like a, a bowling alley in the basement and a, a pizzeria on the back porch and I mean it was you know very lavish and he put it on the market for a hundred million it was the first hundred million dollar house in America and uh, I was staying with Claudia at her parents, and she called Donaldson. Oh, come on over, bring Bob, you know, maybe Vanity Fair will be interested. And uh, so we get this tour, and Donald's like, Bob, did you notice every bedroom has a foyer? You don't just, like, walk into the bedroom, you know? And I said, yeah, I know, that's really nice, Donald. He's like a total salesman, you know? And uh, Jonathan Becker photographed, and I interviewed Donald for a story we did on Palm Beach, like, in 2003. And he came off the golf course with in a baseball cap, you know, and a polo shirt like you would wear on the golf course. And he was like, oh, i got to change into a suit. And I was like, no, no, please don't change. You know, yes. this is Palm Beach. This is your, your, your country club. Because I wanted him to keep the baseball hat on, you know, because he he's so much better looking when you didn't see the hair. And The hair's just become bigger. I think it's actually getting a little smaller. Oh, really? I, I think maybe it's thinning from the stress like a, yeah. of, of high office. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. You know, I, I'm like I'm. I'm. I'm sort of. I've been so political all my life, yeah. uh, from a very young age, reading the New York Times, and I'm just so like bored with politics because it's everywhere. The sports page is political. Vanessa Friedman in the Times is political. The Fashion yeah. Reporter. And it's like, I don't want, I, I, and the news is no longer the news. When I was growing up, when all of us were growing up, you had the three networks, Walter Cronkite, they would say, today, this is what happened to the White House, this is what's going on in Afghanistan, and they just would go down, you know, the new, wherever news was being made. Now they say, you know, the Mueller report came out today, and now we're going to a panel of pundits. And on CNN, they're all like praising, you know, they're all attacking Donald. And you switch to Fox, they're all defending Donald. And But it's not news, it's all like opinion. And uh, meanwhile, Venezuela's burning, and they're not even covering that, because they're so obsessed on the Mueller report. And I, I just like kind of tune out, uh, I think. Do you, do you still go out as much as you used to? Um... Did you ever get to a point where you were just like, I've all, I need a break? Well, even then, I, ne I mean, maybe I needed a, two nights off out of seven. Okay. Um, now I, it's more like four out of seven. I mean, I go out to a house, my house in East Hampton, uh, like, yeah. a lot. So and I do my writing out there. But when I'm in the city, you know, I tend to, I, I tend to go to dinner parties, uh, uh, Last night I ended up going to this, you know, club at, at the uh, 10 Thompson Street Hotel with Vito and his brothers and Bianca Brandolini and... and so all the young... And, uh, yeah, Dasha Shikova and... Yeah. Um, yeah, it, but what people don't realize that Andy in the 70s, most of his collectors, most of the museums that were showing him were in Europe, not in America. He only had one retrospective, real big retrospective in America while he was alive at the Whitney Museum. He had a handful of collectors in New York and almost none around the country. But in Germany, Switzerland, France, England, Italy, I mean, he was like a god. So we were there a lot and, you know, I became friends with all the, like, the kids who were my age at the time. 
and now I'm friends with their children, you know, <laughs> so like, um, and they all think I'm cool because I work for Andy Warhol, so it all kind of fits together. Is there anyone, what, who's the equivalent of Andy Warhol and that scene that you were part of? Is there, do you see something that's an equivalent of that that exists now? Well, I mean, in terms of art, I think Jeff Koons is the most like direct heir. He's almost like the mannerist stage of pop art. Um, but uh, there's no artist that really created a scene like Andy. Starting in the 60s, you know, when he took on the Velvet Underground and opened a disco in St. Mark's Place called The Dom, one of the first discos. Andy did the first light shows ever at, at The Dom. Um, the factory was like just a magnet for all kinds of people from whether it was Nuryev and Judy Garland, uh, Governor Rockefeller, or again, all these young, you know, Andy encouraged young people. And with interview that attracted even more young people, we would have like open house on Wednesday for photographers to bring their portfolios. One, it was a way to not spend a lot of money on editorial content, but two, it meant we were getting, you know, everything, we were all young, and so everything we were doing was like experimental without us even calling it experimental, you know? Um, I, I, there's no, like, e even in fashion, there's, you, I can't point to a designer who was like Holston or Diane Furstenberg or Valentino. Valentino still, when he comes to town, there's like a week of parties. Mm -hmm. But there's no, um, I don't know, Tom Ford is mostly in Los Angeles. I think he has kind of a scene going. Uh, but there is no scene, you know, I again, it's... Do you think that's because of the, of the internet? And everything's become so homogenous well, in a way. Yeah, and even when, when kids go out, they're looking at their phones the whole time. It's like, also, the, the, this house music that's been so prevalent, and then rap music, they're not dance, it's not dance music for the most part. It's like standing there nodding to mm. the music. And, you know, dancing really was fun, and dancing did bring people together. And disco, again, I said it, but, you know, you didn't have to learn steps for disco. And before that, you know, the foxtrot, Latin, the rumba, and the cha-cha, you had to learn steps. So this was like anybody could do it. You could all dance together. You could dance alone. I, I think, I don't know, but there's no... So you document, I mean, apart from, obviously, the, the 70s and 80s here that you were part of, but you've, when you were writing Vanity Fair, you were documenting... Um, these sort of cultural tribes, whether it was the supermodels in the 90s or ladies who lunch. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I was just so you don't see. Oh, no, there's plenty interest. of interesting people yeah. around. I do think the art world is probably the most glamorous uh, scene there is, and particularly the art fairs. Mm -hmm. And if you and then the free nights at museums, like if you go to PS1 on a Saturday night, there's four or five thousand kids roaming through all the galleries and then dancing in this geodesic dome uh you know so but there's you know there's no like andy warhol that um celebrities today whatever field are so protected by bodyguards and you know they in studio 54 diane Ro diana ross would be sitting next to Cher, and some young guy would ask them to dance and they would dance you know it was they didn't, they didn't arrive at the club with 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 bodyguards, um, but today you know every first of all the internet makes it so easy for nuts really to like keep track of where people are going, also to find each other. I mean, you know the extremism we see the growing extremism on the right, the left, in every direction. The internet 
makes the, helps these people to find one another. Before, if there was a neo-Nazi in Riverhead, Long Island, and another one in Huntington, Long Island, another one in Queens, they had no idea of each other's existence. Now, they all get together, and a hundred of them march on in Riverhead, the county seat, and people say, oh my God, the neo-Nazis are taking over Suffolk County. And it's just a small group, but it's like amplified. And, and someone said to me the other night, we are like the muffled majority now. Most people are afraid to say anything publicly because an internet mob finds offense. Again, it could be whether it's Me Too, whether it's Black Lives Matter, but, or, or, or things much more extreme. It's like you just, you can't like disagree with this orthodoxy um, you know, I grew up with drag queens. I love, I mean, Candy Darling is one of my best friends. But, like, some of the stuff that's going on with the trans stuff, like everyone having to call themselves they instead of I, you know, I just, I, I just can't agree with that. Well, now I'm saying it publicly, but I'll yeah, probably get, get like a, a yeah. lot of hateful emails. But I have, I, I have nothing against anyone. I, what, I'm for What do you think Candy would have said about that? Well, well I think Candy would have liked the recognition, but Candy had a great sense of humor. You know, she could do the entire script of Picnic, the Kim <laughs> Novak part, sitting in the back room of Max's Kansas City. She, I, I think she would have, uh, just like Andy, I think they would have thought it was great that people, you know, gays could get married and all that, but I don't think they would be, they'd like the, the more political aspect of those movements. Have you I, met RuPaul? Oh yeah, RuPaul's great. Yeah, no, I, I think it's all great, but I, I don't think, what I, I don't think, you know, people, it's just like, okay, I, I consider myself Catholic. I'm not going to at a dinner party convince you to be Catholic. Just, but I also resent when someone sitting next to me who's vegan gives me a lecture about eating steak. You know, I, I just, this thing, the thing, you know, I, I, I all this proselytizing for people, maybe because people have abandoned tradition, reli traditional religions, they have to turn being trans or being vegan or being whatever they are, like into the new religion. The, in, environmentalism is a religion and it becomes very dogmatic. And uh, that doesn't really solve any of the problems. If, if you can't get together and just get along, this country has come so far in terms of tolerance. When I was growing up in the 1950s, I mean, intermarriage was, you know, Catholics with Protestants. It was Irish Catholic with Italian Catholic was like intermarriage. Now everybody marries whom, whomever they want. Um, the gay word gay didn't really exist for homosexuals until 1970. Now we have gay marriage. You know, um, there's a lot of blacks doing really well in this country. Women are 70% of the graduate students in this country. We should like sort of, I think, celebrate how far we've come rather than keep on protesting and creating more division and more animosity, which leads then, you know, to, in both parties, the, uh, the candidates becoming more and more extreme, pandering more and more to these little groups instead of to everybody. <laughs> Before we finish, is there anything else on your list, or did we do? I feel like there might have been. One well, more thing. It, well, you said five, but I have a six. Oh, fantastic! Which was Bridget Berlin, who was the Andy Warhol superstar. I grew the closest to, and still am very close to. Um, What's she doing these days? 
uh, well, she's not very healthy. She's pretty much um, bedridden, and uh, and she's like an extreme Trump reporter. She watches Fox twenty four seven, and uh, but she, uh, you know, her father. It's funny how people turn into their parents. Her father ran the Hearst Corporation when it was huge. It was not only the magazines, Town and Country, and Bazaar and Cosmo. Uh, it also was like fifty newspapers all around America, and it was very right wing. And, um, you know, she, she grew up on Fifth Avenue with, like, J. Edgar Hoover and Cardinal Spellman and Senator McCarthy coming for dinner and Vice President Nixon. And uh, then she really rebelled and went to work for Andy. She got him into Polaroids and tape recording before, you know, he did. And, um, but oh, now it's got to be 10 years ago. She had this, she started making tit prints mm -hmm. where she would dip her, her breasts into uh, these different color inks and then press it onto drawing paper. So I have this wonderful tit print. It's three tit, three nipples, sort of in red, blue, and green. And uh, and Bridget, she's she she's done some really funny artworks. She needle. She had another show where she needle pointed the covers of the New York Post for like uh, several months. She did about a dozen of them, the most outrageous covers, and made them into needlepoint pillows. The same size as the post, and um, she she clipped uh, she very carefully cut out the penises from hundreds of porn magazines and put them all together in a, a plastic pillow. It was called her <laughs> penis pillows. Um, so all of her artworks uh, I value highly. Um, which one are you? Which one is, is your favorite? Um, well, the only one I really have on display is is the tip print, um, but um, I, I've been very lucky over the years. A lot of artists have given me art or done my portraits, so um, I'm sort of a little bit bursting at the seams in terms of my uh, possessions. And uh, I realize lately I've got to start, you know, editing. It's a nice problem to have. It is a nice yeah. problem to have. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Bob. That was great. Really interesting to talk to you and thanks for coming on the show. Oh no, thank you. I enjoyed doing it. That was an episode of The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man and the hashtag Five Carlos Place. Thanks for listening.